Okay, Rabbi, say, let us begin. We're going to learn a beautiful piece tonight from Rav Schwab. Mayan Beis HaShoeva and Chayi Sarah, Perak Chavhei, Pasuk Aleph, Vayosef, Avraham, Vayikach Isho Shma Keturah. The Pasuk says that Avraham Avinu went on and he took a wife and her name was Keturah. Uberashi B'Shem HaMedrash, Zu Hagar. Who is this Keturah? This was Hagar, another name for Hagar. V'nekras Keturah, Al-Shem Shenoim, her deeds, her actions were as beautiful as a ketiris, as the uh, fragrant odor, uh, aroma of the, uh, of the special spices of the ketiris. She was uh, aromatic with all of the different various types of besamim. Keturah was, and the Pirkei Durbalazar gives another interpretation of Keturah. Her deeds were as beautiful as a Keturah. The and she had for him. She she bore for him six sons: Zimran, Viyakshan, Umadon, Umidjan, Viyashbek, Vishuach. Um, okay, that's the lashon of the Pirkei Durbalazar. Umashma shini nisue Avram hashniim haya. It sounds like that the point of Avram retaking uh, or either taking Keturah as a wife or retaking her as a wife if it's really um, Hagar was for the point of having these six sons. All right? And, and uh, we know the six sons' names. And that was the whole point of him taking uh, her. Now, what do we care about these six sons? Like, what do, who are they? What did they do? Um, you know, what was the purpose? What was so important about the Pazak telling us that Abraham Avinu had more children after Yishmael and Yitzchak and whatever happened to these kids? Venire. So Rav Schwab says as follows, Shekivan shehuftach loyla Avram v'esparchu b'zarecha kalgayar. Avram Avinu was blessed at the end of last week's parasha. Um, it says that you will... Be your, you will be blessed through your children, Kol Gayar, it's all the nations of the world. How would that happen? How would that happen that Avram Avinu's children, descendants, would, um, how would it happen that Avram Avinu's descendants would be scattered all over the world and, and there would be blessing uh, for the world through them. The Tavim and Bracha Lachala Eilam, the Mashiyomadu Mehamidas Hateve, Shalamdu Mehaviyam Avram. Because these children, these six children, Zimran, Yakshan, etc., these were children of Avram. Avram Avinu taught them, Midas Taiva, Chesed, Rachamim, and then what did he do? He sort of like sent them, he scattered them off to the far-flung corners of the world, and from them developed a bracha for the entire world. How is, how is the word of Avram Avinu going to be carried out? Yitzchak um, stayed very local, right? Yitzchak never left Eretz Yisrael. Yaakov Avinu, 70, 
descendants of his just went down to Egypt and they stayed there for a couple hundred years. So how exactly was this bracha mekoyim? I mean, you could say that maybe it means after, you know, several hundred years or a thousand years maybe, and now the Jewish people, the direct descendants of Ram Abinu through Yitzchak, had, scattered, had been you know, scattered through Gullus uh, throughout the entire world. So now you can make a case that that's where there is a kiyam of this haftacha, this baruchu b'zaracha. But Rav Schwab wants to say that it was much more of an immediate um, effect of this, uh, of this bracha. It wasn't just that you have to wait a couple of hundred or a thousand years until Klai Yisrael goes uh, into Galas and spreads all over to Spain and to Portugal and to America and to, and to Mexico and to Russia. You don't have to wait that long. There is an immediate influence of Bnei Avram throughout the entire world because they were able to sort of disperse. These six sons spread and they, they moved all over the world. And from that, if there's any Midas Taivas in the world, if you encounter Gayim in, in, all, in any parts of the world that have fineness of character and they're good people, so then that might have been possibly a direct influence on, of these sons, the sons of Keturah that Avram Avinu raised and Avram Avinu then subsequently spread them out throughout the world and that created a tremendous amount of goodwill and, uh, and, and good Midas in, over the entire globe. The Yuvam Bazem Ashakasla Alam Parsha, the Lubnea Pilakshma Shalavram Nasan Avram Matanes. It says that the children of the Pilakshim that was to Avram, Avram Avinu gave gifts. Upir Shashi Bashem Gamarsh and Muslim Shem Toma. Rashi says, What were the gifts that Avram Avinu gave to these children? He gave them Shem Toma. Not clear what that means, a name of Toma. Pirish Rashi Shukishov Umaisa Shadim, he gave them the ability to do witchcraft and to deal with demons. How would that be? Avram Avinu was into witchcraft. Avram Avinu was giving over to the Bnei Pilakshim a shame tumma, this like Maisa Shadim and Kishof magic. Is that doesn't sound like the Avram Avinu that we know. Meaning, he gave over to them the shame of Hashem that's mutter to be said even when you're Tommy. There are certain shames of Hashem that must not be recited in a state of Tama. Then there are some that you may, and Avram Avinu gave over that. That's what it means, shame Tama. Avaladar Kena says, Rav according to our approach, Yeshleimar, Pirish Acher, Lefigir Sasai, what does it mean, Shem Bitoma? He gave them the power of knowing the Metzias Vashem. What did Avram Avinu bring to the world? Avram Avinu brought to the world the concept of monotheism, that there's only one God in the world. And he gave that over to these kids, the Yakshan and Zimran, all these Bnei HaPilagshim, he gave them this Kayach of Toma, uh, the Shem Toma, what does that mean? The Kayach, Rakshay Siyadiyazu, Etzlam B'Toma, Kiban, Shoy Haislam, Gam Yidiyaz HaTarimu. Rav Shab wants to be Machadish that a Shem B'Toma means that he taught them about Hashem, but it was B'Toma, meaning there was no Taira that came with it. Yitzchak Avinu was given, known, also was taught about 
the shame of Hashem, but it was given Bikdusha because he was taught the entire Tyra. Avraham Avinu learned with Yitzchak the Tyra. Shem Ever presumably taught Yitzchak Tyra and Yaakov, etc. But the Bnei Apilakshim, Avraham Avinu did not teach them Tyra. So what did he teach them? He taught them the shame. He taught them to know about Hashem. And it was Betumah because it was, um, it was given without the, the Tara of the Tara. So we call that Tomah. And then it says, he scattered them from Yitzchak, he separated them from Yitzchak his son, while he was still alive, and these children, the Bnei HaPilakshim, the Bnei HaPilakshim were then scattered uh, throughout all of the lands um, of the world. And they went, like, uh, I don't like to use the word missionaries because it sounds like a Gaisha thing, but they were able to, as Avram Avinu's messengers, go and missionize and tell about uh, the Rabbi Islam throughout the entire world. And this was a tremendous blessing for all of the families of earth. And with this, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's promise was fulfilled. Fascinating Vartar of Shrab is saying. He's saying that, that Avram Avinu had, these, had this new wife. Her name is Keturah. And she had six children from him. And Rav says, who cares? Like, what, who, like, why is that important to him? I mean, obviously, it's nice to know that Avraham Avinu had more sons, but like, what, is, what, what do we have from them? What, as, you know, when you're studying Chumash, you presumably want there to be a takeaway for you. Like, what is that? how does it affect me? That Avraham Avinu... So he's saying that these six sons were basically sons that were, that were raised by Avraham Avinu. He taught them the shame. He taught them about HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And then he like sort of set them free throughout the entire world. It reminds me of, uh, you know, the Rothschilds. Rothschilds were a very powerful uh, banking dynasty. And it was started by a Frum guy in, uh, in Frankfurt, Germany, a Jew from, from Yid, um, he was like a baron, I think, a baron Rothschild. And they say very interesting stories about him that he was, uh, he would have on his vast, he, he was a very wealthy man, like, you know, tremendously wealthy. And one time he was walking with somebody and that person, they were walking around his, like, very big grounds and they noticed there was a little, like, hut, like a little house in the middle of the grounds. So he asked, Mr. Rothschild, Baron Rothschild, like, what is that? What, you know, is that like a shed? Is that where the gardener keeps his tools? He says, no, no, no. He says, come, so tell me what it is. So they went into this little house together. Mr. Rothschild brought him in. And in it, there was a, a coffin on the ground. And there was a Sefer Mavar Yabaik. It was like a Sefer about Avelos and Shiva and death, like things you have to know for death. And... Um, yeah, and that was it. So he says, well, what is this? This is like the creepiest room I've ever seen in my life. Like, what's going on here? So he says, every day I take a break from my business 
you know, and I'm very powerful, and I have like a, everyone's like Kareem Mishtachavit to me. Everybody's bowing down to me. And what can I get you, Mr. Rothschild? How are you feeling, Mr. Rothschild? You know, he's, he thinks you know, and it's very easy to get very seduced by the power and the and the, and the money. He says, so every day I go into my shed over here. I take a walk. Nobody knows about it. And I lay down in this coffin, and I remind myself that there's going to be a Yaim Hamisa, that someday I'm going to die, and that this world is very transient, and, um, and that, that keeps me humble, it keeps me real. And I don't know if the story is true or not, but it's a very famous uh, legend about this Rothschild. And he had, he himself had uh, several sons. I don't know if it was five or six. One of them was... Um, took over for him in Frankfurt. That was like the main branch of the bank. He had a very powerful bank. And then he like spread his other kids. One moved to London, one moved to Paris, one moved to Vienna, I think. One moved to... He, all the major capitals of the world, of the Western world, were, I don't think America, but like all the major um, you know, Western European capitals, he moved another child to. And they opened up branches of the Rothschild Bank and they became, like, so powerful, like the most powerful Jewish family in the world. And they were the ones that lent money to governments. They were the ones that backed government uh, bonds. And they were, like, billionaires, like, literally, like, crazy amounts of money. And, uh, and all because he, like, spread his, he spread his sons. They fanned all over Europe, and they controlled the money supply in all the major European, you know, wealthy countries. So the reason why I'm telling you that, and what's the, I mean, one, the one that stayed in Germany, he was also very from. He, he was very from, and he, uh, a lot of uh, legends about him, very big Baal Tzedakah, and he uh, gave a lot of money to Eretz Yisrael, to the Yishim and Eretz Yisrael. But the other children uh, that moved to London and to Paris and to wherever else they moved, a lot of them, maybe all of them, went off the derech. Like they all, you know, assimilated. It was a time of assimilation. It was during like the 1800s, and uh, reform was very strong. Haskala, and uh, most of them, you know, married out, or they they went off the derech, and their children, grandchildren. Um, there still is a lot of Rothschilds around Europe, but none of them, to my knowledge, you know, are especially religious in any which way. They're just very social. They're very like, you know, very powerful socialite family, but maybe, the, anyway, but that's, the, it just reminded me of this, because Avram Avinu Lahabdal El Abdalis, you know, on a spiritual sense, he had these six sons from Keturah, and then he, he spread them all across the world, so that they should go, and they should spread the Dvar Hashem, they didn't know Tyra, that wasn't their mission, their mission was not, Yitzchak's mission was to know Tyra, and to spread Tyra, and to, but the other children were just good solid children that went and they created a world that recognized Hashem. Like there might be the reason why in a lot of these far-flung countries of the world there are still very good people that believe in God might be as a legacy of these sons of Keturah. This wasn't just a, you know, a blip on the, you know, uh, you know in, in Chumash that really it's unimportant, even though I think all of us that were Maver Sedra just gloss over these Psukim that speak about these Gaiyash family. There's significance to every single Pasuk in the Chumash. And Rav Shab is saying this is the significance that 
Avraham Avinu used these children, he mobilized them as a force to reckon with. He spread them all around the world, and there are, there are good people, there are good Gayim around the world as a result of that. There are people that have morality and a conscience, and, a, and, and they're fine, upstanding people. They're not, you know, they're not mushchasim, it's not like a dara mabel, dara flaga. There are many people like that also, but amongst Gayim, you find that there are many people that are really nice people, and you know, and there's nothing wrong. That might be because of Ramavino spread this these sons around the world, and and Mamish created an empire, if not of Tyra, but of 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 people that recognize Hakadosh Baruch Hu in the world, and that and that changed them, that changed the entire world, as Rav Schwab said that. All of the nations of the world would have a bracha gedayla from this a tremendous blessing. I want to just uh, end. This is a very it's a very important piece from Ashwab. I, I I think it's very important to share that. Um, and I want to share with you something else. I started a seder with the Talmud um, in uh, in the sefer Nafetz Aves, and uh, it's basically. A Pirish and Pirkeyavis that was written by Ravadi Yosef, Zechitzadik Levracha. And so we started, so just like it was an interesting piece, I just want to share with you quickly when it's set, you see on the bottom, in the left hand column, all Yisrael have a Chelek Nelam Haba. That's how the Pirkeyavis begins. And Ravadi Yosef says like this, Bemilas Kal. Where's that extra call? It should have said Yisrael Yeshlem Chela. What's call Yisrael? That word call is coming to me. Marbe Chasidei Umais Eilam. That there is something in the world called Chasidei Umais Eilam. Sheishlem Chelam Haba. They also. It's not just Klal Yisrael that has a Chelam Haba. A lot of times, like we have a very uh, narrow view of of Eilam Haba and of who the good guys are and who the bad guys are and what you know. So we basically say. Oh, Kal Yisrael has the next world. Gayim have this world, right? Gayim don't have the next world, and we don't really have this world. It's not true. It's, it's a fallacy. First of all, we could have this world. I think many, very often I think Jews live a much better Elamaza than Gayim do. You know, they certainly, you know, I think, you know, just on a, on a materialistic level, I think, uh, you know, at least from the, from the environment that I, I see, like I don't see many Gaim driving brand new minivans and driving fancy Lexuses and, you know, these types of upscale cars, but I see a lot of Jews driving them. So just on a very superficial level, the houses that we build and the, the foods that we eat, the restaurants that we have, you know, we're not suffering in this world, at least not in this Gullus. This Gullus is quite a good Gullus for Kali Yisrael. We're eating very well. I don't, you know, I don't think we have any shortage of pizza coming into this building and sushi coming into this building and Carlos and Gabby's coming to this building. I mean, I've, I've never seen you know, this much you know, good food in one building in my entire life. And I'm talking about just one day. Um, but um, but, um, so, but the other thing, which is really what I want to focus on, is, is Ilam Habo. When we picture Eilam Haba, we say, okay, Gayim, no, 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 Gayim is like, they don't have any shaykhist to Eilam Haba. Jews, yeah, Jews are from, they, they, they get Eilam Haba, Mitzvah Gayim, no, Gayim have this world, they don't have Eilam Haba, they like, you know, we don't know what happens to them. Rav Yosef is saying that when it says the word kol, 
that's going to be marbur, not Gaim in general, obviously if they're anti-Semitic and they're disgusting and they're Risham and they're Meshchasim, well obviously, you know, that's, they don't get into Elam but we don't either if we would be that way. But if a, um, if there's something called a Chassideh Umas that means that there's good Gaim out there, there are Gaim that are Chassideh Umas and if there are those Gaim, and there are, they get into Elam Haba as well. And he proves this, Teda, and I'll bring you a riot to this, Mishnazu, Arba Hejaitis Einlam Chelam Haba, in this Mishnah in, 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 in Parachelek, right, that's what we call the last Parak in Sanhedrin Chelek, because it says that there's four Hejaitis that do not have a Chelam Who are they? Bilam. One of them is Bilam. What does it mean, Bilam? Of course, Bilam doesn't get into Elam Abba, he's a guy. So the Rambam says, That's because Gayim do get a Chelam. If you're a good guy, you get a Chelam Elam Abba. So that's why it's telling you that Bilam was from Rishamu. If he would have been a Chassid, he would get into Elam Abba. And we're going to just stop here a little bit. I just want to tell you one thing. So where does Chassidim Masalim come from? Where, where is the, how is there a concept that there's Gayim that are good Gayim, that they're, you know, they're fine, upstanding, righteous Gayim? So that might come from this Pasuk that we learned tonight together. Avram Avinu married a woman Keturah. We don't know much about her. We think maybe she's Hagar, maybe she's not. She had beautiful deeds, right? Her Masa was, was Noah Kikotiris. But she had for Avram Avinu another six children. What happened to these children? And Rav Schwab proves from different sources that these children went all over the world and they built up this monotheistic empire, they taught the world that there's one God. They taught the world you have to do chesed. There's, they taught the world that you have to be good, upstanding citizens and, and, and generous and, and caring and, and gentle and fine and kind. All the midas that Avram Avinu imbued in them, they went and they spread to the world. So if you find Gayim sometimes that are very benevolent to Jews, that might be a direct... Legacy from this pasuk in Avraham Avinu. Tell you something else. Personally, I would not be sitting here because I wouldn't be born because my father wouldn't be sitting here because he wouldn't he would not have survived the Holocaust were it, were it not for Chassidim um, Asylum. My father, Olav Shalom's family, lived in Germany for hundreds of years. Like uh, you know, the city of Würzburg. My father was born, and my grandfather. Uh, had a business there. My great grandfather was the rub there. My great great grandfather was the rub there, and um, for many many diaries, we lived in Germany. And then, when my father was a young boy, his uncle, his brother, my uncle, who just died maybe a year and a half ago, he was coming home from school. They went to like a private Gaisha school. There were no yeshivas in Denmark uh, before the war, or even after the war, for that matter. But um, and the Gayim were like heckling him and screaming at him, Jew. They were throwing rocks at him, like. And um, he came home crying, and my grandmother said to my grandfather, "Ad kam It's enough. Like we can't. We got to move out of here." 
The women, my business is here, our family is here. What do you mean, move out of here? He said, we are, if you want to stay here, you stay here. I'm, I'm taking the kids and I'm, I'm going. If you want to come, come. I, we can't stay here. It's not, it's not safe anymore. Hitler's rising to power is already in 1933, 1934. Hitler just came to power and he was saying that he's going to kill the Jews. Everybody thought that he was, a, he was an idiot, he was a fool, and he was going to just probably get thrown out just like he came in. But these things have a tendency to foam, you know, to... To, to, to get much worse. And my grandmother was very prescient. She was very smart. And she told my grandfather, we have to get out. So they moved to Denmark. My grandmother was family, lived in Denmark, um, also for hundreds of years. They had a shul in Denmark. They had an apartment, a whole building, and there was an old shul in the building. And um, so they moved to Denmark. And because Denmark, Germany was like sort of not attacking right away. They needed them for milk and butter and whatever. They had a, a, a decent relationship. So Hitler didn't invade Denmark and round up the Jews just yet. But in Rosh Hashanah 1943, there was, a, um, there was somebody that tipped off the Jews. It wasn't a huge show. It was a few thousand people. He tipped off the Jews that no one should come to shul tonight in Rosh Hashanah because... Um, because Hitler, because the Germans are going to come, they're going to swoop in, rush on a night, and they're going to chop all the Jews and send them to the death camps in Germany, in Poland, wherever. So my grandmother uh, was home when the news came. She was setting the table for Rosh Hashanah. You know, that night was Rosh Hashanah, so she was setting a beautiful table with china, with uh, flowers, with... Uh, she was making, cutting up vegetables and uh, preparing a soup and meat and whatever else she was doing. And then the chippahs, and they had to all, like, pack up whatever they could. They ran out of the house, and they were taken... And my grandfather was friendly with the chief of police in, in Copenhagen, so he put a seal on the whole building you know, where the shul was, there's a tire with silver, with, the, you know, svarim, and everything was there, um, that by the order of the Danish police, nobody is to enter this building. Um, the Germans, I don't know if they had big derecherets for, for the German police, but, you know, anyway, whatever, that they put it on the door. And then they went into hiding, and then they were ferried across the water from Denmark to Sweden. There's like a a body of water. It takes a few, like an hour or two maybe to cross, not very big. And uh, they went, the Germans were like patrolling the, this strip of water to make sure that no one escapes. And the, but the Gaim, the, the, the Danish Gaim, for some reason, it's like an anomaly. In the whole Europe, every other country, Kemat, with certain very, maybe Greece to a certain degree, but like every country in Europe, you know, the Gaim that lived in those areas were oftentimes more brutal and more cruel than the, than the Nazis, if that's, if that's believable. Meaning you go Lithuania. Lithuanians were the worst. The Gaim, when the Nazis came in and they were rounding up Jews, and they were, the Lithuanians like, said, please, let us do it. Like we, you know, they were volunteering. They, shecht, they, they went into people's homes and they shechted, like people sitting over their Gemara's learning. They were just, they were gruesome tales, that, but it's the Gaim that did it worse. And uh, in Ukraine, like today, every, the whole world is, loves Ukraine. You know, they're taking on Russia, and it's David and Goliath. And, you know, there's the Ukrainian flags. Everybody's wearing lapels. And Ukraine is, like, amazing, right? Ukrainians were the worst guy in, in the history of the world. Over the past hundreds of years, since Tachvetat in, in the mid-1600s, 
they had the Chalnitsky uh, pogroms. They literally, first of all, there were you know tens of thousands of Jews that were killed. They ran from town to town. They were mamashechting Jews. But it wasn't just that, the cruelty that they had. You read about I don't even want to talk about it. There was like the, what they did to the Jews like in these towns, besides for, for what they did to the women and to the children. And to, they would take pregnant women, just to give you one really disgusting example, that these are all brought in Sarim. They would take a pregnant woman, cut open her stomach, throw the baby out, put a live cat in the stomach and, and sew, sew that up into the mother. I mean, just like, like the sick, like they almost, you could say they're worse than the Nazis in a certain degree, certain level. And, and this went, it didn't stop in the 1600s, it went throughout the ages, from then, until like World War, you know, until World War I, World War II, the Ukrainians were the worst. Today, you know, Zelensky, he's a Jew, you know, like it seems like a beautiful story, you know, and, and, but the Ukrainians are much worse than the Russians. The Russians weren't good either, but the Ukrainians are horrible. And all these people, I don't know, this might be like HaKadosh Baruch Hu taking Nakama from Ukraine after all these centuries of the, you know, a build, build up of what they did to us. But all the nations of the world at that time, you know, in, in Europe, the, the indigenous nations were much crueler to the Jews, if that's, you know, that's, a, that's not easy to say, than the Nazis. Denmark... And I'm not saying that all Danish, I told you, like some of the kids were throwing rocks at my uncle, so obviously it wasn't like, you know, but it's a, a lot of the Danish people, they went and they were Mason efforts. They say even the king of Denmark, King Christian X, was he, it might be a myth or whatever, but he, he, put, he wore a yellow star, you know, and he said, like, if, you know, if they're going to take the Jews away, they're going to take me away also. And people, like, really stuck up, stuck up for the Jews. And they, there was these Danish fishermen that had these fishing boats, and a lot of them you may have seen if you ever went to like a Holocaust museum, there's like a fishing boat in the middle of the museum. Those are from, that's the type that my father and his family were ferried across, you know, from Denmark to Sweden. And then, uh, and there was, you know, they, uh, there was a, a German boat that came, like, with its brights, and they thought for sure they'd get blown out of the water. It was like a nace. They just sort of, like, passed them right by, Nothing happened to them. They came, uh, Erev Yom Kippur, my, fa- my family came to, uh, to Sweden, and uh, they got set up there. They, you know, for, they would stay there a few years until after the war was over, maybe a year and a half, two years. They came back to Denmark, and you'd think, okay, you know, it was nice that the Gaim got them out. Maybe they just wanted to get rid of them without a guilty conscience, but they're not taking them back. They stood by the, by the docks waiting for the Jews to come back and they gave them, you know, they, they gave them a, a big Shalom Aleichem, a big Baruch Abba, and my grandfather went back to the building, to the house, and no one walked into that building. No, no Germans came, and everything was exactly intact, like Mamish when they left a few years earlier. And in the kitchen, like the dining room was still set for Rosh Hashanah, and the kitchen, there was like, like a jungle of vegetation from all the potatoes and the, you know, whatever my grandmother was making for Erev, for, for Rosh Hashanah, it just, she just left, they just left in the middle. It was like a whole garden in the, in the, in the kitchen from that. But I'm just bringing that up because there, you know, it's, you know, again, Gayim, you know, yeah, we have to be very careful, you know, sometimes, you know, a guy, there are Gayim and there are Gayim, there are Gayim that are horrible, and, you know, and, and, and they're going to not get their Elam Haba, clearly. 
but then there are also Hasidah um Israel, and there are people that are Hasidah um Israel, and, and they are righteous Gentiles. They're people that really, you know, they, they're able to step up to the plate. And, you know, I always do this, but it's a, it's a you know, let's say Chas Shalom, what happened in the Holocaust would happen in America. But instead of the Jews getting round up, it would be a different, uh, different ethnicity. Uh, you know, all Chinese people are being rounded up. Okay, let's just giving a muscle. Um, would you take them into your house and like, and and hide them in your basement until the war is over? And and if you get caught with them, then you know you get killed. I and mean, would you? You know, like we're. It's. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. Right. Why would I do that? So why do we expect Gaim to do that for us? But yet they did. There are many Gaim that, you know, throughout the war, you know, you always see these documentaries and that, you know, there were Gaim that Mamish allowed Jews to stay in their attic, stay in their basement, stay in the shed, and they would bring them food and they would, like, cover up for them and they were literally putting their life on the line. There is a concept in the world of Hasidim Asylum. There's a, the reason why the Mir Yeshiva was able to survive and make it out of, of Poland in the middle of a war was because there was a, a Chinese uh, guy, his name was Sugihara, and he was Meiser Nefesh. He stamped every passport that he possibly could, and as he was, like himself, getting out of the country, he was still on the train, like, out of the window, like, stamping more and more papers so that the Mir Yeshiva, the Rabbeim, the wives, the children, and, the, and more people in the Jewish community could get on this train uh, with certain types of visas from Caracas or something, and they got out, and they res- it was respected. It got, they, they took the Trans-Siberian Railroad from Poland to all the way through Russia, through Siberia, it landed in uh, the end of Russia. They took a boat to Kobe, which is in Japan, and then from Japan they went to Shanghai in China, and, and they survived the war. We know the stories about Shanghai and how they were able to learn Tyra there, and you know, was there, and Rebchaim Shmulevitz was there, and, and uh, Shmuel Burma, great people came out of Shanghai. That was Hasideh Umasam. There was a, 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 a Chinese guy, and he, he lost his job as a result, that he died in poverty. He was busy, and today he's a big hero. They're making movies about him in China, and because he was the man that, you know, that stood up against the Nazis. But at the time, Bizyainis he went through. He literally had nothing. He, is, you know, he had a promising career as a diplomat, and, uh, and he gave it all up because he had a conscience. Where does this come from? How do you have Gayim that have such... Avas Yisrael, they, they, they're nice people. It might come from this Pasuk. That may be what Rosh Hashanah is telling us. The Bnei Keturah, the Bnei Pilagshim, Avram Avinu taught and he trained how to be good, how to be menshlech, how to have Avas Yisrael. And they were spread over throughout the world to China and to, you know, and to Denmark maybe and to different countries. And over the course of, of many, many millennia, um, you know, that had an impact. And because of that, when we needed to be saved in whatever way, these Gayim, stuck, they, they stepped to the plate and they were able to do it. And it was all perhaps a legacy of Avram Avinu. This Pasuk that we learned tonight, which everybody glosses, Yosef, Avram, Ba'ikach, Yishosh, Maktura, okay, get, let's get back to the Akedah, let's go right to, you know, to, this is a very crucial Pasuk. It's not a every Pasuk in the Torah is so important. We just have to figure out what the Torah is telling us. But this is a great example of a Pasuk that everybody glosses over, but it's so historic, it literally changed the course of human history.